just started warming up, just for my talk. <laughs> it's good. It's been getting, it's been really cold. Yeah. You know, walking into the hall, <laughs> it felt like I was walking into a cave, the dark, cold. <laughs> We're not in a cave. We're at a very nice meditation center. Is this picking up? Is it consistently? It's not weaving in and out? Okay. Good. Not quite used to this new system. Still feels like there's a little insect over here. Like swatting it. Anyway. Um, So, are we taping yet? Oh, we are? Oh. Okay. All right, <laughs> so first full day, I know for, I mean, I think I, as long, it was many, 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 many decades ago <laughs> when I had my first retreat, and yet I still remember my first day. And it was a very impressionable day, um, and not in a really upbeat way. Um, <laughs> put it that way. Uh, you know, first retreat. Uh, often, first day or two particularly, can be kind of an unwelcoming experience. Um, you know, it's, it's quite a challenge to adjust to this kind of sitting in a sequential, you know, to sit this much in such a sustained way and all of that. As Peggy mentioned, we appreciate the effort for sure. It's definitely worth it. And um, we want to keep that practice going. And tonight's talk is really about that. It's about the power of mindfulness. And I think it's very important to realize that it's a very powerful practice that we're doing. Uh, it, as Peggy mentioned, opening night, you know, the Buddha was known as the Awakened One. And that's the path that we're on. We're on a path of awakening. We're on a path that facilitates a very deep transformation of consciousness, actually. Uh, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a hobby. You know, it's not necessarily even a casual undertaking. You know, once you uh, recognize the value of it and you commit yourself to doing it, um, it's really about uh, living your life in a fundamentally different way. And it doesn't, when I say fundamentally different way, it doesn't mean that you have to give away all your possessions, your car, your home, and go off, uh, renounce everything and go off into a cave. Uh, it's much more about an inner fundamental change, a whole different way of relating to the experiences that you encounter in your life. Uh, in many ways, it's a radical shift in consciousness, moving very deep way from living a life that's often unconscious and moving to being more conscious, conscious, awake. It's about moving from a consciousness, a a mind, that is very often so disconnected because we're so preoccupied in thought, so burdened by our conditioned thinking, that so often we find ourselves disconnected from our bodies and our hearts and our minds. And this path is a path of intimacy where we learn to connect in a fundamentally different way with ourselves, our bodies, our emotions, our moods, our minds, a fundamentally different way of connecting to our environment. And, and this, this shift is real. You know, it's not some ideal or it's not something that's unattainable. It's not something that, you know, you have to practice for 30 years straight in, on a retreat in order to experience it. Um, but it does take a certain level of patience and perseverance. And you can, I'm sure, see that just in spending the day today in this structure, that it does take patience because it is such a shift, you know. And, and, and I always think that um, when we undertake a path of awareness, of awakening, whatever, however which way that path expresses itself, um, we're asking a lot of ourselves. You know, we're, we're asking a lot of ourselves to, to be with ourselves because we're so conditioned to move away. 
You know, we're so conditioned to be threatened, really, by ourselves, by facing ourselves, by um, being with ourselves. And the, the culture and, and the values that we grow up in um, reinforce that. You know, reinforce that. There's a tremendous desire. Uh, I mean, a lot of the learning that we've done in our lifetime, a lot of the messages we've gotten, whether it's through education or family or just the culture in general, is, is basically you're going to be happy if you get as much, many kind of pleasant experiences, if, things, if your life looks like a particular way, um, and if, if somehow, uh, you know, uh, to try to avoid the uncomfortable or the painful and to sort of develop strategies around both, both to accumulate pleasant and avoid the unpleasant. And of course that creates an enormous amount of tension and confusion in the mind because as, as much as we might cling to something that's pleasant, its nature is to change. You know, as much as we try to avoid pain, uh, human existence consists of pleasure and pain, whether you're wealthy or poor. So that creates a lot of stress in the mind. And so oftentimes what we find ourselves doing is um, you know, trying to figure out what is going to bring happiness. You know, what is going to bring peace? And, and I think from my perspective, uh, my theory is that there's so much more interest in meditation because of so many of the strategies that we've learned along the way. Um, we're beginning to see that they're not really working for us. You know, they're not bringing us the happiness or peace that we all aspire to. So in many ways, this process of awakening is a process of awakening to the habits that we've accumulated along the way. You know, the preconceptions, the assumptions that we make, the habitual attitudes we have about ourselves and others, the bias, the views, the opinions, you know, the things that we accumulate and then we live our reality. We live our, our thinking processes feed on that and condition how we meet the present moment. In many ways, that's the limitation of thinking as a form of intelligence. And I'm going to talk more about that as the talk goes on. But when we take up meditation, you know, as Sarah mentioned in our Q&A today, you know, this, this isn't a time to nurture dwelling in thinking or reflecting. We're going to do plenty of thinking anyway. Uh, but what we're really doing is beginning to cultivate a whole nother form of intelligence, this intelligence of mindfulness, which is an intelligence that hasn't been valued. Um, it hasn't been nurtured. It hasn't been supported. And so it's a new skill to gain access. You know, this, this form of intelligence, this uh, power of mindfulness, it's an innate power. In other words, you don't have to come to a meditation center to be mindful. It can help in terms of nurturing continuity of mindfulness. Uh, you never have to have heard the word mindfulness, um, be in a spiritual center, or any of that. All human beings have the capacity to be mindful. It's an innate form of intelligence. The problem is, is that it's obscured by, by our conditioned thinking. We're, we've been um, trained to rely on thinking. And uh, oftentimes when one realizes the limitations of thinking, you know, in other words, we're not, it's not taking us to that place of happiness, whether we analyze, figure out, strategize, control, whatever it might be. It's still not giving us that relaxation and ease, that sense of connectedness or meaning in our life. But then we can swing to the opposite end of things and really see that thoughts are inherently problematic. Uh, that um, when we start meditating, we start talking about being mindful of the breath. Oftentimes what happens is we then create an enemy of our thoughts. We begin to see that when we get caught in thinking or, or that the thinking process itself is a problem and it doesn't have to be. We don't want that relationship. In fact, so much of what we want to talk about on this and what we want to support is this sense of being more allowing of what you encounter. And we are going to encounter and you have encountered a lot of thinking ever since you arrived here. And in mindfulness practice, we become very aware not only of the fact that we're thinking, but we also become very aware of the repetitive nature of thinking. And I often feel like when you start meditating, 
it's very humbling because you might arrive at a center with a PhD, you know, you're very successful, you're making a lot of money, people have a lot of respect for you, blah, 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 blah. Um, but then you sit down with your mind and you see how ridiculous it is and, and how it goes on and on in, in circles. You know, thinking, patterns of thinking, patterns of relating, you know, thinking about anything that the mind can grab onto that will take it away from the here and now, from the present moment. And of course, the habit of thinking, oh, we need to check on that. Um, is Jared or Mindy here? No. Peggy, could you check on that? Great, and let me know. Let's just pause for a minute, see what's happening. It sounds like he fell. So, you know, just come back into your bodies. It's going to be taken care of. We think he might have the flu, but he's lying down and he feels like he's fine and we're getting help for him. So he's going to be well taken care of by Mindy and Jared, as you met. met. And that's part of their job is to help take care of us uh, when something like that happens. But it doesn't, se- doesn't sound serious. But we take it seriously, for sure. So, thinking, not our enemy. It's not, it doesn't have to be a problem. It was in the context of mindfulness practice. In fact, what happens, as you'll see, as the instructions change, we've already begun to address it with some of the questions, some of the really great questions we had during the Q&A, which is that um, practice isn't about getting rid of your thoughts. Uh, you, you're going to need to think, especially when you leave here. Um, so, it's thinking is not... Um, not the problem, it's our relationship to thinking. You know? And without awareness, without mindfulness, um, thinking isn't necessarily that useful. In fact, oftentimes when we get caught in our thinking, because it's conditioned by the past, by it's, it's conditioned by a lot of confusion that we've learned along the way, um, our thinking can be very limited. So what happens with mindfulness is we, we can begin to include thinking in the mindfulness practice itself. And that fundament, that's a huge step. That's a, a, a huge radical step to take uh, on this path is to begin 
Not to get rid of your thoughts, to repress them, to squash them so that you're totally focused on what you're doing. But it's about moving into a different relationship which is much more open-hearted, uh, which is uh, much more aware of the thinking process and the habits of mind. And what that begins to do, that mindfulness of thinking, what it begins to do is that it begins to transform thinking from a, from a, a process that is often disempowering you know, thinking like fear and anxiety and worry and, and certain kinds of habits that we've picked up along that can be prof- profoundly self-doubt, that can be profoundly undermining of our freedom, undermining of us recognizing our potential as human beings. Um, what happens is we begin to see that, we begin to see them as thoughts that come and go, that these emotions are energies that come and go. So we're beginning to get in touch with a whole nother level of reality. Because prior to that, what happens is we're often absorbed by them. We're identified with them. We're living from that place. And we're relating to the here and now through that lens, through that history. In mindfulness, the power of mindfulness is that it allows us to make very direct contact in a fundamentally new way with the here and now of our experience. It gets us in touch with the actuality of our experience rather than the preconceptions, the built-up accumulation, the burden of preconceptions about who we are and what our experience is. And so what mindfulness facilitates is this capacity to make a discovery. You know, insight means discovery. It's seeing something that you didn't see before. It's an uncovering process. It facilitates this deconditioning of the mind, freeing the mind discovering space in the mind. As I mentioned last night, it definitely helps to develop a sense of humor, uh, particularly when we face kind of, you know, both a sense of humor and a certain degree of humility and also a lot of respect for the practice that we're doing. Um, tell you a story about, um, you know, Peggy. I think I might have mentioned that Peggy and I were on staff uh, prehistoric times. Uh, we were on staff here at IMS in the early years. And uh, I, I was on a variety of staffs because they were often in, in transition, and I was somebody who just kind of clung uh, to practice centers. And, you know, practice was, meditation practice was, was and still is the cent- cent- one of the central themes of my life, central values of my life. So I was living in that community, and I remember at one point uh, with one staff, um, we also had a lot more time because it wasn't, you know, there weren't so many people meditating. Um, so there were gaps between courses, and the ca- courses weren't this large. And so we had a lot of time on our hands to get in trouble, basically. Uh, and, you know, you know, do all sorts of deluded things. Uh, and so one day a friend of mine invited me to play tennis. And I didn't grow up playing tennis, but I grew up playing a lot of sports. Uh, you know, in my family, we didn't play tennis. Uh, you know, we played football, basketball, baseball, but not tennis. So we got a couple of tennis rackets and we went to an outdoor court down in Barry, outside of Barry Center. And uh, we, we, start, we went out there and we, at the end of the afternoon, like five or six was the summer when it started cooling down. And we, would have, we were having like a blast. It was just so great. You know, we're at a meditation center, you know, sitting around a lot, uh, working in the office. And so just getting out and getting back into that was just a very uh, exhilarating experience. Uh, and so we were really getting into it. And then we started coming back to the center and talking about very enthusiastically about what our experience was like, you know, and just really getting into it. So it started getting contagious. So more and more people started playing tennis on staff. And pretty soon we had like, you know, six or seven. There was only about 11 or 12 staff back then. Um, We had pretty much had like six or seven people getting out to the tennis courts. Uh, We almost had to schedule the tennis courts, but fortunately there was enough of them. Uh, So we got out there and we started playing tennis. And then someone had this and I'm saying this very facetiously, this brilliant idea of having a tournament. (laughs) Can you see the delusion kicking in now? Uh, So someone had this brilliant idea that we were going to have a staff tournament. 
and that there was going to be a trophy at the end. <laughs> and like, I don't know, $5 or something. We were all pretty broke. Um, so we started having this tournament and, you know, uh, and very quickly the, the tone and the mood and the environment of us playing really started to change. And nobody really noticed it while it was happening, primarily because there was a lack of mindfulness uh, at that time. And we were all committed practice, practitioners. But what was happening was our conditioning started kicking in, that competitive conditioning. And I'm not anti-competitive, but it, 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 you can certainly get carried away and taken, taken uh, into it. So what happened is we started, uh, it turned out we started enjoying it less. Uh, and people would come back after winning and gloat you know, about winning. People would start teasing each other a little bit. You hate that, right? Teasing each other if they lost, you know, something, you know. And, and pretty soon it started really not being a very enjoyable thing. So by the time we got to handing the trophy out, uh, we all quit tennis. We just, <laughs> why bother? It's like turning into this miserable experience, this like ego-driven thing. Um, and we're meditators, right? Not that, you know, like, not that you can't go out and play sports, but we turned it into something that um, was not happiness producing. And the reason we did was because we didn't recognize what we were doing. We, we really lost the joy in, in the process itself. So once we quit tennis, you know, fall kicked in. Nobody really talked about it. <laughs> you know, in fact, nobody talked about tennis again. You know, we just feel like it was never existed. Um, and then in the winter, there was a ping pong table down in the lower basement. And so me and somebody else started playing ping pong. And then we decided to have a tournament. <laughs> and the reason I remember that is because I won the tournament. Uh, I got this little trophy or whatever from it. Uh, and again, the exact same thing happened. <laughs> We stopped playing ping pong when the, when the tournament was over because nobody was really, by that time, nobody was really enjoying it. You know, it just turned into, not cutthroat exactly, but it, it, it lost the, you know, it lost its joy, the spontaneity, the freedom that we were experiencing when we first started. And to me, there was such a lesson in that and, and nobody really woke up to that until a little bit later. And then we started talking about like what happened. And we realized that what happened was is that we were just unconscious. You know, the power of conditioning, it can just sweep you away. And it's so help, it, from my perspective, it's really helpful to recognize that um, and not, not be self-judgmental about it, you know, but to, to, to have, to, to, to be, to be uh, humble in the face of the work that we're doing. And because to me, what that does is it encourages that patience and perseverance and the recognition that we're all on this path, you know, once we, on this path of awakening, and we need to develop patience. And, and gentleness and loving kindness towards ourselves because it is a challenge meeting ourselves. You know, we've learned so many unuseful things. And what we're trying to do is discover what's useful, what is going to lead to freedom and peace, genuinely. And we all have to discover that ourselves. You know, it's a direct experience. It's not something that you get from someone else. It's not secondhand knowledge. You know, you can read about meditation and all the great enlightenment experiences you can have, but it doesn't replace doing it. So what are the qualities of mindfulness that um, are so revolutionary, really, um, that are so transformative? And they are. Even one moment of mindfulness is facilitating change. It's not that we necessarily perceive that in the moment, but it is facilitating a shift in consciousness. We're beginning to take and bring awareness to what our actual experience is. And, it's, and what the path of awakening requires us to do is to be in touch with what our actual experience is. It's not about transcending your experience. It's not about becoming. The Buddha talked about the suffering of becoming. You know, it's having that agenda, trying to get somewhere, trying to be a good meditator, trying to be this, trying to be that, trying to be that. It's about moving into a more mindful relationship to what your actual experience is. 
And in that process of being mindful of it, your experience changes. You wake up. You see yourself. You see things as they are. That's what insight vipassana is translated as. So the power of mindfulness, it's this form of creative intelligence. You know, thinking can be extremely useful. It can also be extremely limiting. When we combine mindfulness, awareness, with thinking, it transforms into discernment, clear seeing, guiding our decisions and our choices and our relationships. Because now there's a self-knowing, there's an awareness quality of what your experience is, rather than being burdened by preconceptions in history. It allows us to meet the here and now in a fundamentally different way, in a way where we're actually in touch with the newness of experience. We are changing human beings. We are an unfolding process. We are not someone who is static. All the concepts and images that we have about ourselves are concepts and images. Now, might, there may be some reality to them, but not necessarily ultimate reality. So mindfulness. What makes it different than our thinking, why it's such a powerful form of intelligence, is that it's completely open-hearted. In other words, when we're mindful of pain, it's not telling us that we shouldn't be having that pain. It's letting us know we are in pain. When the mind is restless, it's not saying it shouldn't be restless. It's being aware that we are restless. When the mind is bored, when the mind is happy, it's not saying we shouldn't be bored, we should be happy. It's letting us know that we're happy. It's letting us know that we're bored. That awareness is creating an opportunity for us to take a look at that experience, to get to know it. In other words, what is it like to become intimate with boredom? For most of us, we're conditioned to move away from boredom. We're often threatened by boredom. But why is boredom so bad? Why does it get such a knock? It's hard to find the answer for that. What's the nature of boredom? What's it like to be bored? You already know that. Um, But what's it like to know it in an open-hearted way? Not feeling like something is wrong. Something you have to do about it. That you're flawed because you're feeling bored. Or blame the external conditions because you're bored. You know, getting to know yourself. You know, getting to know what's arising for us. What, what, What is arising? You'll never hear from a Dharma teacher that you should be having a particular experience. You know, now that we're here at the retreat center, you should be calm, you should be this, you should be that, or you could be this, or you could be that. That's not, that's not the nature of the practice. The practice is always, let's take a look at our actual experience, but relate to it, not in the way that we often relate to it when we're thinking about our experience. You know, If we think about fear, we're going to have all sorts of attitudes, ideas, preconceptions about that fear. We're going to identify with it, take it as me and mine often. When we're being mindful of fear, it's a different experience. We're actually developing the capacity to be with it and to observe it. Begin to see it for what it is. So it's free of preconceptions. To me, that's very inspiring to me. That there's an innate form of intelligence that I can tap into that's free of preconceptions that I'm not stuck there. All the stuff, all the useless stuff that I've learned along the way, all the biases, all the prejudice, all the preconceptions, the judgments about myself and others, we don't have to be stuck there. And so often our thinking is lodged there. And mindfulness loosens that grip. We can actually meet relationships, we can meet ourselves in a fundamentally different way so that we can uncover and discover things that we never saw before. And it's right there. So often what we see in practice, this is amazing in Dharma practice, is that we, we keep discovering what we realize was, like we discover the obvious. You know? but, we, but it takes a while to discover the obvious. It's right in front of us. Um, but to really see it and, and let it into your heart and, and uh, absorb it and live from that place. It's different. 
You know, it's different. So we're developing in this practice, and I think it's one of the challenges on a retreat. Uh, I think one of the primary challenges on a retreat, other than, you know, the body pain and things that come out of being in a posture in a sustained way. Um, and, you know, hopefully we've encouraged folks uh, that if, if you're finding that there's a lot of pain because of the posture that you're sitting in, you know, not that the, if there's a lot of discomfort in the body and it's not related to posture, there's different ways of working with that. We'll talk about that as the retreat unfolds. But if, but if, if sitting in a chair, you know, is a bit of a refuge from that posture, you know, we encourage you to do that, not to, not to necessarily take some kind of macho um, attitude and feel like, well, I always sit cross-legged because that's how I'm supposed to sit. The supposed to, of course, is the agenda and the preconceptions. How are things? Okay, good. Seems like things are fine. But one of the main challenges, I think, in retreat is that we're not used to being with ourselves in this kind of a sustained way. We're not used to that. And, of course, when we come on retreat and we are like this, you know, being with ourselves and and dealing with things as they come up and the challenges that that arise from that experience... um, but what we're, what we're developing here is that capacity to be with yourself, which is enormously powerful when we can actually, when we develop as we nurture the path and the practice, um, when we start relating to our experience without that agenda in, in, in an open-hearted way, um, it's tremendously empowering because now we can actually be with ourselves. You know? We're no longer burdened. Um, with feeling like we have to move away or move towards something else. And so we get to know ourselves in this path in a very intimate way. A big significant aspect of the path is self-knowing. It's becoming more intimate with your actual experience and developing more kindness. You know? Sarah's going to do the compassion practice tomorrow afternoon. Developing more compassion towards the pain and difficulty that we encounter. You know, that's something that we haven't been trained to do. You know, we've been trained to avoid pain, to see it as a bad thing, to see it as a flawed thing, to see it as something we have to avoid at all costs. We can often be very judgmental when we're in emotional pain. And that's not a useful, that's not helpful, it's not supportive. It doesn't lead to liberation. But fortunately, we can develop the inner resources. We can change our minds. You know? But it does take walking the path. You know, it does take putting a certain degree of effort. But it also <coughs> requires us to discover what kind of effort we want to make. And as I mentioned last night, it's sort of like the kind of effort that we want is that um, the non-striving kind of effort, but yet showing up, you know, really taking advantage of method, persevering, uh, recognizing that there's no one that I know of that just began to sit and it was just great from beginning to end. We all encounter the things that we're encountering. We all encounter the... What, the, the sleepiness, the restlessness, the desires, the fears. But, you know, we've, we've all been through that. And, and it's part of the material. Uh, it's part of the requirement of the practice. But it doesn't mean that you're stuck there. That's how it is, always. But it, in this awakening process, that's part of what we're awakening to, is the things that haven't worked for us, the strategies that haven't worked for us. We wake into the ways that we haven't necessarily taken care of ourselves. So we're discovering that, and, and we need to be patient with ourselves. We need to be patient in that process, in persevering, for sure. Perseverance is just an incredibly invaluable um, quality uh, to nurture and to develop. And, and one of the things I think, one of the great powers, I know all of us up here and all of us in this room, 
uh, if you continue the practice, you'll see the value of practicing in a community or having people to support you in the practice because it does support that perseverance uh, that one needs uh, on this path. In the Buddhist tradition, there are many stories. Um, I think it was easier to get enlightened back then uh, than it is now. Either that or maybe they weren't getting enlightened or maybe we are enlightened, I don't know. Uh, but there are many enlightenment stories and there are many stories, just people awakening. You know, and that's what we mean by enlightenment. Yeah, uh, from my perspective, every moment of mindfulness is, is an awakening, uh, an awakening of consciousness. Maybe some of them are a little stronger than others. Um, but in the Buddhist tradition, these deep insights, awareness, transformation, can occur in any activity. And there are many situations where people are doing really mundane things like, like lying down in bed. Very famous story about enlightenment there. Um, somebody working their butts off, walking and sitting and practicing, and then they finally, they're exhausted. They lie down and boom. You know, or you know, chopping vegetables, or, or all sorts of experiences. People opening a door. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, just everyday experiences that we go through in our lives as human beings. And what's inspiring to me about that is I'm not wait, waiting for that moment every time I open the door. Um, but what inspires me about that is. What we see is that on this path, the beauty of the path is it's non-fragmented. In other words, the learning process that we're facilitating, which is really what insight meditation is about, we're learning the nature of suffering, what the, or, what, what the origin of suffering is, uh, we're discovering what freedom is and what the path is. Okay, so that's the learning, that's the framework, is discovering that, hey, this is what's happening. You know, Mind isn't necessarily happy understanding the nature of it. Well, the nature of it is our conditioning, the confusion, the, what Buddha described as ignorance. You know, not seeing clearly what leads to happiness is suffering. And then through the path, through this loosening of grip, of conditioning, of not relying on our conditioning in discovering space and love and freedom, the mind wakes up. And then what we see is that the mind wakes up through our effort, through making the right choices towards pointing the mind and pointing our energies and effort in the right direction, in a wise and compassionate direction. We discover that that's the path. So it's practical. It's not just about waking up, but it's about there's a path that we can all take advantage of if we have access to it, if we have this precious opportunity um, and we have access to, to a practice, well, all of us can wake up. But why we can learn so many things in our daily life is because so often the mind is re- relating or reacting to experiences. I've learned a lot about myself just in washing dishes. And that's not a joke. I mean, I wa- I've learned so much about certain habits um, that I tend to carry with me. And one of the habits is, is I want to get through certain experiences in order to move on to something better. Uh, you know, so when I'm washing dishes, I want to get it done. Why? Well, because I have something else in mind uh, that maybe is more pleasant. I don't know. You know, sometimes it varies a lot. Um, but reali- recognizing that habit, say the impatience that might arise under that particular experience is really helpful because we do that on a regular basis, not just when we're washing dishes. So that's a moment where we can recognize the suffering. But is there inherent suffering in washing dishes? Don't say yes. <laughs> no. No, there isn't. It's our relationship to washing dishes. It's our relationship to what's going on, what that experience represents. And that's incredibly freeing to me because to know that one can learn about oneself, that one can learn really about the path that leads to peace through daily life experience. You know, once we've cultivated enough resources, particularly mindfulness as the core, once we learn that, then the learning can occur anywhere. And what happens on the path is that your life becomes a learning process. 
even the difficulties and the challenges that one faces can then facilitate even deeper learning. And oftentimes I've seen that. Sometimes under the most difficult conditions, one can discover profound freedom in that because so much is being worked with as long as we keep paying attention, as long as we're in touch with our actual experience and, and, and keep, keep that mind that's inquiring or investigating rather than self-judging or carrying around a preconception. You know, that inquiring mind comes out of a mindfulness practice. We use mindfulness in inquiring, taking a look more deeply. Not so, not so much necessarily through the thinking process, but through silent attention. Not adding or subtracting anything to the experience. Then we get to know it. You know, if we want to get to know someone and we do all the talking, we aren't going to get to know that person. To get to know that person requires us being quiet. Maybe asking a question, but then listening. Receiving. That's what I mean by silent. You know, someone asked about that. Silent is receiving, listening, to learn. With no intention, no agenda, just listening. Just with that, maybe with the intention just to learn something about that person. And when we meet someone like that, it's a gift to them. Just like what we're doing now, listening to ourselves. If we listen to ourselves with the right attitude, which is we just want to learn. We know we need to discover something new, otherwise we wouldn't come to a meditation center. We wouldn't put ourselves through this. If everything was working, we wouldn't do this. So we know we need to learn. And the way to learn is to, to over and over again be mindful because mindfulness, that form of intelligence, is open-hearted. It, it, it's, it's receptive to learning. It facilitates learning. Um, it, it allows us to meet the here and now in a new way. I remember when I first began this practice, um, you know, I'd done it quite young in my teens. I was doing different spiritual practices and yoga and some other things. And some other things I can't talk about, like <laughs> 70s, early 70s, late 60s stuff. Um, but for me, you know, I, I always had a kind of a strong inclination towards something, finding something else other than, you know, knowing that there was something more in life than what I was doing, you know, or what I was engaged in, or how I was relating to it. Uh, there was a strong interest in doing that. But there wasn't really an understanding of what that meant, or how to do that, or um, how to find freedom. Um, I did know, though, pretty young, that um, I wasn't, I mentioned this maybe last night, I wasn't going to be able to think my way out. I wasn't going to be able to think my way to freedom. And in fact, to me, in that phase, and I've seen other phases in my life at times when the thinking, it makes that, you know, makes that space even smaller. You know, kind of closes, closes things, closes you in. It's contracted often. And so recognizing that, I, that thinking wasn't going to be the path, you know, then it was basically, well, what is? What is going to facilitate this freedom? And I remember uh, when... Uh, it was in 1974, it was the year that Joseph Goldstein uh, came back from Asia. And he landed in Boulder, Colorado at this place called Naropa Institute. And it was summer. Um, and, you know, Dharma practice back then was a little bit on the hippie style, uh, kind of free-floating, free you know, people were doing lots of things. Um, so I was taking a couple of different classes, and I didn't know anything about him or that particular tradition. took a class in Zen, I took a class in... Um, Tibetan Buddhism um, with uh, this fellow named Trungpa, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, um, and I, I wasn't really drawn necessarily to those particular approaches. And then one day, the session had already started, um, and I heard about this guy, Joseph Goldstein. Uh, and he was teaching this practice called Vipassana Insight. And I kind of slipped into his class because it had already started. You know, it had been about two weeks. But I had paid my money to register for classes, so I felt like I could go. So I went. And it was, you know, it was definitely a um, life-altering experience. You know. 
because what he was doing was he was teaching mindfulness, which was a very different approach. It was practical. It was practical. It was accessible. And all it meant was I needed to put effort to be mindful. And so that really launched me. You know, that really launched me on this path and it gave me a lot of faith, a confidence, somewhat because of how he was manifesting, but because the teachings were so clear uh, and it was so, it made so much sense to try something new, like just pay attention to what your experience is. You know, just be mindful, be open-hearted, just pay attention, be aware of your moment-to-moment experience without trying to make it into something or make something out of it or try to figure it out. But just be with your emotions, be with your experience, be with your body, and, and put yourself in conditions that are going to nurture that. And then life became much simpler because then I realized, yeah, I just need to practice mindfulness here for a while. And so I did. And I began to see change, finally. You know, that, that kind of uh, conditioned, contracted, thinking mind that was very, um, you know, pretty crazy at the time. I mean, I was young, but pretty crazy. Um, started to change. And all of a sudden, I started feeling more connected. A lot of the fears that I had been carrying around began to loosen their grip on me. And um, more and more, I began to understand the teachings and actually to begin to directly experience the teachings. And I started tasting freedom. And it was a path. It did not come overnight by any stretch of the imagination. I'm still on this path many, 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 many years later. It's still a process of discovering and uncovering, discovering something new. How, how, where, what are places that I suffer? You know, what's the nature of that? But with the practice, one develops this capacity to explore that rather than feel like you have to run away from it or feel resigned or stuck in it. You know, you can begin to take up the things that are generating unhappiness and begin to relate to them in a really different way. And we're developing the resources to do that the qualities that we need in order to transform the mind, we are developing. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much, uh, why I keep saying come back to the method. Because it's not, the method is just going to strengthen those resources. But at some point when you're living your life, you're not using a method, you're just living your life, but your life is so much more awake because you've nurtured the qualities that lead to awakening. And as Peggy mentioned in her thing, you know, it becomes that we become responsive clear seeing. Uh, and oftentimes it can be not so effortful. You know, we can begin to see what is obvious in front of us. You know, what does lead to peace? What does lead to suffering? Oftentimes it's very obvious, but it's obscured. You know, it's amazing what some folks, including us, feel is going to lead to happiness when you look around the world and what people are doing to each other how they can convince themselves that this is going to lead to happiness is beyond me, quite frankly. But it's delusion. It's ignorance. It's, it's not understanding. So the effort that we put in here is a tremendous investment in your happiness. So you should appreciate the effort that you're putting in Appreciate that you put yourself in the set of conditions, that you took that step. You know, for those of you who are new especially, it's a big step to come on a retreat. For those of you who've been here before, you know the benefits, you've tasted the benefits, and you're back. And, and those who are back know and are very intimate with some of the challenges that the new folks are facing. Absolutely, and they may be facing those same challenges now. But what happens for folks is that we begin to relate to those challenges in a fundamentally different way. And that's extremely empowering. So things don't always have to be the way we want them to be in order to be happy, in order to experience peace. Because the peace that we're facilitating here is not, a con- it's not conditioned. It's not conditioned by a set of conditions coming together. It's coming from within. It's moving us in a direction of unconditioned happiness. 
where we can discover peace and happiness under any set of conditions. And, and it's worth the effort. Let's just sit for a minute. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings be peaceful. And may all beings everywhere be free from all forms of suffering. So let's uh, continue the mindfulness practice as we move out of the hall and we move into our final uh, walking session, seeing if you can bring that quality of fresh attention. You never know what you're going to learn about the present moment and what's happening. So uh, keep the practice going and we'll be back here again uh, at 8.45 for a half hour sit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.